Well, I invite you to turn to First Peter and to chapter 5. For those of you who are only here this morning and haven't been here, we've been looking at verses uh, 5 through 11. And as you turn there, may I just say thank you to all who've been involved in inviting me here and in caring for me while I've been here. And uh, for those of you who've, who have uh, immediately started to mother me as soon as you saw that I got a cold and uh, people slipping me NyQuil and all kinds of stuff. And uh, um, it's, it's, it's kind of nice to have reached the age of 64 and have women still call you son. And uh, so uh, I have looked forward to the week. I have now enjoyed the week. Um, I'm, I'm dressed ready to go home. I hope I've not violated your, your code of, uh, uh, your dress code. Um, <laughs> because I wouldn't like to offend you in any way at all, but uh, it's, uh, I, I go away with, with, uh, with a sense of gratitude for the privilege and uh, encouragement uh, in the gospel. First uh, Peter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. A brief prayer. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, Shape and fashion us in your likeness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as um, Dr. Bailey has said, I go back to my, my usual job uh, for Sunday. I preach on Sundays, and gladly so. It's the calling on my life. And I'm aware of the fact that as I preach Sunday by Sunday, um, I, preach, I preach weekly. Uh, that's with two E's and also with E-A. Um, but as I preach weekly, I'm aware of the fact that I preach to a congregation uh, of men and women whose lives are often marked by quiet desperation. The, the uh, sincere smiles and the insincere smiles uh, provide often just a thin veneer, which uh, is easily penetrated and then you discover that and there's no surprise in this that the congregation is dealing with all kinds of circumstances uh, ongoing illness fears and failures dealing with loved ones who have got um, uh, itch, uh, situations in their life that are in need of care and and, and one of the uh, one of the great responsibilities in pastoral ministry if one is going to shepherd the flock is to do as Peter does here in this letter and that is to make sure that he is not talking down 
to those to whom he writes. Um, we stand up in a pulpit, and you need to be up, and you need to be seen. I mean, they built a big platform in the book of Nehemiah. That makes perfect sense to me. I, I'm not one of these fellows that uh, believes that somehow or another the pulpit is a, is a hindrance to the, the task. Um, no, we need to be there, and, and we need to be seen. But we also need to be seen to be those who have both entered into the trials of our congregation and who are prepared to be honest about our own particular trials. And I don't mean that kind of naked preaching, that sort of dreadful thing where the pastor tries to impress everybody by how horrible he is and, and uh, how, how much he's gone through. Um, it's very self-serving in, in most cases. And, and I often pay attention to uh, C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, where he says, those like myself whose imagination far exceeds their obedience are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions far higher than we have reached. If we describe what we have imagined, we may make others and make ourselves believe that we have really been there and so fool both them and ourselves. There's a great, great danger in that. And just to be alert to it is at least part of the battle and to have those who love us uh, watching out for us as well. Well, as I say, I don't think we get the impression that Peter is talking down to his readers and we are part of his readers. It's hard to imagine him, as we've tried to see each morning, addressing, for example, this issue of humility without being reminded of the fact that he was guilty of some of the proudest assertions in the discipleship band. Uh, they will all fall away, but I will never fall away, and so on. You can count on me, when in point of fact, ultimately he couldn't. Or in the matter of anxiety, uh, when he was the one who, I think, as the big bold fisherman, had to uh, make sure that Jesus knew they were drowning. He was filled with anxiety. Or on the matter of adversity, as we looked at it yesterday, It'd be, it'd be pretty difficult for Peter to, Peter to talk about the challenge of dealing with the evil one without hearing in his mind the words of Jesus, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. And when we come to this morning, as we do this matter of security, uh, surely uh, he was aware of the fact, uh, on account of God's grace and goodness to him, of what Jesus had gone on to say, Namely, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, the Bible actually declares what uh, the Christian life confirms, and that is that faith does not remove us from the realm of that which is painful and difficult and sad, the inevitable experiences of living life in a fallen world. And Peter has almost gone full circle by the time he gets here in his letter. Because if you allow yourself a page turn, you will see that he began uh, his letter by reminding his readers of the inheritance that was theirs. It was imperishable, it was undefiled, it was unfading, it was kept in heaven for them, and they were being guarded 
They were secure in the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he has gone on to say, And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And he goes, he goes through that. Now you come back to him as he's beginning to uh, draw his letter to a close, and he's right back at the same thing. And after you have suffered a little while, it's the same phrase. If, I beg your pardon? Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's actually chapter 5, but uh, that's all right. Um, so don't ask Siri, ask me. Um, <laughs> Alexa, what was he talking about? <laughs> and after you have suffered a little while, then the God of all grace who has called you to glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. So here's the security. He had begun with it. Uh, there's an inheritance that is yours that is absolutely kept in heaven for you. You need be in no doubt about this. And you need to keep this in mind because of what you're going through and will go through. Now he comes and begins to wrap it up and he essentially reinforces the truth. The path to glory and he is called, as you will see there in verse 10, to his eternal glory. The path to glory is through many dangers, toils, and snares. And when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when uh, the day has come to an end and we're feeling ourselves completely overwhelmed, uh, then uh, with Annie Johnson Flint, Flint, uh, Flint, we're able to say, that our Father's full giving has only begun, that uh, in this experience, the extremity of it uh, reveals the reality of his grace and his keeping power. Now, it's that that I simply want us to have a hold on this morning as I take my leave of you. Flaky preaching in this realm leads to faulty thinking on the part of the congregation, which leads to manifold chaos in the living of the Christian life. It leaves men and women adrift on a rowing boat in the sea of life with no oars. It leaves them paddling furiously for the shore in search of their best life now. That somehow or another, something has gone dreadfully wrong in this program. Apparently, there is nobody who's in charge Everything has seemingly uh, gone pear-shaped, and uh, I must have done something horribly wrong, or there must be some reason that I have to come to the front again at the end of the service. I need to get rededicated for the 47th time, or whatever it might be. A simple study of the Bible relieves us of that kind of nonsense and sets us free in the reality of God's sustaining and securing grace. Um, the, the, the wonderful thing about the Psalms, it, uh, Spurgeon referred to it, I think, on one occasion as, as the medicine chest of the soul. The lovely thing about the Psalms is they're not all full of um, uh, jigs, as it were, but they are, there's an equal share of lament. And, they, and that's why they, they give us, it's, it's so wonderful to be able to take Psalm 13 on a morning and say with the Psalmist, How long? How long? Must I have sorrow in my heart? How long do I have to cry out to you, God? 
And apparently you don't even hear me. How long? Well, we understand that. God understands that. He gave us Psalm 13. Jesus sang Psalm 13. Jesus probably knew all the Psalms off by heart. One of the ways to read the Psalms is to read them in light of Jesus and to pray the Psalms in light of Jesus. Now, I don't want to dwell on this because my point is not the suffering, but it is the security. But let's not, let's not try and, and, and slip past this. You know, because, again, as the Puritans would say, in shunning trials, we miss blessings. Uh, Rutherford says that trials come to prove us and to reprove us. James tells us that we should actually count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds, not because we're masochistic, but because we recognize that somehow in the providence of God, he uses these dark threads, he uses these deep difficulties, he uses these sadnesses, these failures, these disappointments in order to accomplish his purposes and to save us from a horrible realm of superficiality that makes no appeal to a watching world that is aware of how tough it is just to live life. It's, it, it is a terrible thing when a congregation or a seminary presents itself as the company of the together. We are the together people. We have everything together. Uh, what a shame that you don't have it all together like us. So when somebody comes into that context, just broken, distressed, falling apart, they, they, they're probably going to go right out the door again just as quickly because they said there's nobody in here who, who has ever experienced this kind of thing. So we have this presentation of ourselves. That's why I read from C.S. Lewis. The pastor can do it as well, describing circumstances that he doesn't live in the light of himself. The Sir Edward Elgar, whom you all know, because <laughs> you've endured pomp and circumstance in your graduation, did you ever hear a thing play again and again and again and again? Talk about suffering, you know. Bum, 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 They started about 20 minutes before the people start processing. It's like you're just screaming, stop that, please. But anyway, Elgar on one occasion, I'll just mention that for the sake of suffering, but Elgar on, on one occasion was present uh, when a young lady sang a solo from one of his own works. She didn't know he was present. She had a voice of exceptional purity, clarity, and range. She reportedly had an almost flawless technique. And when she concluded the solo, Elgar said softly to the person next to him, she will be really great when something happens to break her heart. She will be really great when something happens to break her heart. J.M. Barry, the Scottish playwright, had a brother who died in infancy, just as a wee boy. Barry said, that is where my mother got her soft eyes, and that is why other mothers ran to her when they had lost a child. 
You see, the God of all grace actually knows always what he's doing. And we're not tossed around like corks on the sea of chance. We are not held in the grip of blind deterministic forces. We are being trained in the school of God's providence. And as the Puritans again like to say, providence is a soft pillow. Providence is a soft pillow that God knows that when the morning comes and we begin with the 121st Psalm, we set out on the day, I lift my eyes to the hills, which is pretty difficult for you folks to do down here. I lift, I, you need a good imagination. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. A God who would not cause his child a useless tear. Too wise ever to make a mistake. Too kind ever to be cruel. And after you've suffered a little while, if you suffered your entire life, and some do, we have children in our church who have some of the most severe debilitating illnesses. Their siblings in a family of um, big, strong brothers and so on. They're in our special friends group. They make their way through the day. I look at their parents, and every day that dawns, they're in the exact same situation that they were in the previous day. And uh, we never want to be superficial about things like that. If you suffered for a little while, well, in light of eternity, if I were to suffer my whole life, it would still be a little while. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, of all grace. What does he, what is he, what is he do? Well, he's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And his call is irrevocable. Those he called, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that, that's what he's actually doing with us all. Every one of us, he's doing the same thing. What is God doing? He's making us like Jesus. Romans 8, that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. Second Corinthians, we are being transformed into his, into his image. First John, when we see him, we will be like him. So God's eternal purpose in calling us is to make us like Jesus. His eschatological purpose ultimately is to make us like Jesus. And the existential reality of it is that we are presently being conformed to the image of his son. And in the process of that, these things are part and parcel. Now, here is the great promise. You say, well, now let's get to the point. Well, no, it's all the point. But let's just notice uh, the, the, the security that is here uh, in these words that we have. Uh, when, he is, whom he is called, when he's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore. Restore. Now, I know that Dallas Theological Seminary is good for, for, Bible, uh, for doing word studies. And so I don't want to bring coals to Newcastle. Uh, but... Uh, the task of uh, the task of uh, the preacher is not is not actually to tell new things as much as it is to it's not so much to inform people of what they don't know as it is to remind people of what they mustn't forget 
And uh, so don't let's forget that this word is a, is a very good graphic Greek word. It's the same word that would be used for the mending of nets. It's the word that would be used in orthopedics for the setting of dislocated bones. It is the word that would be used for the refitting of a damaged vessel that had been brought into dry dock in order that it might be patched up and set back out onto the sea. And uh, that is what God uh, is doing, he says. Uh, God is the one who does that restoration work. And often it may involve, uh, as with the refitting of a damaged vessel, it may involve us being knocked about quite a bit. You remember C.S. Lewis again, he says, you know, when, when, I, when I first became a Christian, uh, I thought it was, it was pretty good and, uh, and uh, everything seemed to be quite nice in the little cottage of my life. And then he says, all of a sudden, one morning, the, the, a group of people showed up with hammers and chisels and saws, and they began knocking the place around something fierce. And I thought this was all wrong until I realized, no, that this was how God works, because he wants to turn the little cottage of our lives into a palace uh, that is fit for himself. And uh, the pain that may be involved in that is always purposeful. He will uh, restore, secondly, confirm or make you strong. <clears throat> In other words, he, he provides the support uh, to prevent us uh, from toppling, from toppling. Uh, many, it's been fun to see many of the young couples here and um, to um, uh, watch them with their children as well. And uh, I, I, I'm just intrigued by all the, the, the circumstances that are part and parcel of, of life in young couples that weren't there for us. I mean, you've got to walk around, you carry these pails around with your children in them all strapped in and everything, and you've got to strap them in here and strap them in there and put them up here, put a helmet on there. And put, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you've got to get up an hour early just to, just to make sure. You know, we survived without all that jazz, you know. I blame, I blame that on the European Union mainly. That's <laughs> That's why we're getting out. I agree with that. You know, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to have a, a, a guy wash your windows on a ladder taller than five feet in Great Britain. They've got to use poles with brushes on the end that are long because uh, of health and safety established from Brussels, you know? But anyway, Teresa's gonna take care of that. She's here today and, uh, and hopefully she can talk some sense into the other guy and we can move forward. <laughs> the reason I got to that was because when, you, when, 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 uh, we were, when our children were small and we went to, we went to someone's house and it was clear that they were going to fall asleep, then we didn't have all this dreadful, you know, paranoia about what we were going to do with them. We just put them on a, on a single bed, wedged in the corner of the room, and then we put pillows all around them. The biggest danger was they were going to suffocate. But, but, the, but they were not going to topple. They would not topple. And so very carefully, we made sure that they were safe and that they were secure in that context. Now, the promise here, and it's a very simple way to put it, but, but it's important to understand. Here we are, and, and uh, the idea of being confirmed and made strong is, is a great encouragement when we're aware of our weakness. 
I don't really feel very strong. I don't really feel that I'm going to make much progress here at all. John Owen says we cannot perform our duty without the grace of God, nor does God give his grace for any other purpose than that we may perform our duty. Restore, confirm, strengthen, or I think in the, in the NIV, make you firm. The, the picture here, the word here is not so much uh, of toppling, of being knocked over and knocked out, but of collapsing, of, uh, of our, our, our life going out from underneath us, as it were, so that the external mercies of God help to stabilize us, but we are strengthened in the inner man, that outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Uh, that uh, we, we need to remind ourselves that he is the one who strengthens the weak knees and the feeble hands. I think it was Owen Chadwick, it might not have been, who used to read Isaiah 40 on a Monday morning as an antidote to all that he experienced the previous day in the pulpit. And I, we often do it as a pastoral team. I will come in on a morning and I'll say on a Monday morning, it's definitely an Isaiah 40 day today. It just is. And then we will read that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up as wings as the eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Promise. Promise. And it's in our weakness that we discover it. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you or make you steadfast, steadfast, establishing foundations. I was preaching some years ago in Hong Kong, at, uh, in Kowloon, at an, in an Anglican church, and they were doing construction next door, and they had pile drivers. <coughs> and it makes a heck of a racket, and also it shudders the whole place. And so I would be like, uh, please take your Bible, Boom, and turn to First Peter. Boom. I said, "This is going to be an adventure that I have never had." Why do you have to go to such extent? Well, if we don't put the foundations in right, the building will inevitably collapse. Why does God have to go to such an extent? Well, because His purpose for us is that we will not be blown away. You think about what was involved for. Uh, the parents of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How they must have said to one another, I wonder, what's, I wonder if our boys are holding the line. What about Daniel's mom and dad? And maybe the mom said, oh, I think Daniel will be okay. We set, we, we set him on the right path. We began every morning saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. I think he'll be fine. And he was. God is able to rescue me here. But even if he doesn't rescue me, still, still, he wasn't about to collapse. So there you have it. Where does our security lie? The God of all grace supplies support so that we won't topple, strength so that we won't collapse, a foundation so that we won't be blown away. And you will notice that he 
attends to this himself. That the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, will himself. It's no merely fortuitous or, fortuitous or, or sort of instrumental help that is promised, but God's own active participation. It's an expression of what we find ultimately in Revelation 21. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does that mean? Well, it, it means what it means. It means that somehow or another that God, through whatever agency, acts in this way. At a, at a far more trivial level, we could just... Uh, we could just drive it home with a, a lyric from Johnny Cash. You remember the song, I talk to Jesus every day? And he's interested in every word I say. And no secretary ever tells me he's been called away. And I talk to Jesus every day. Every day. Do you? See, the means of grace are means of grace. Do you participate fully when you attend upon worship? Do you go out of your way to be with the people of God on the Lord's Day? Does Dallas Theological Seminary believe that there are only nine commandments and that the Lord's Day is a moving feast that may be tackled on a Thursday or on a Tuesday or on a Saturday night? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. The neglect of these things will become apparent in your life. And you will never, ever regret a disciplined commitment to being with the people of God on the Lord's Day in order to do what God has asked us to do and in order that we might be the beneficiaries of all that he provides for us. They faced trials of various kinds. The storms raged about them, and Peter knew that it was absolutely imperative that their lives would be anchored to that which doesn't shift or turn or change. And so, with the writer of the Hebrews, we remind ourselves we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. As uh, boys in Scotland, we used one of the songs. In fact, the, the theme song of our of our youth thing was uh, um, went like this: "Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold, uh, their wings of strife. When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain?" And then we the refrain was: "We have an anchor that keeps the soul." steadfast and sure while the billows roll and fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded, firm, and deep in the Savior's love. No surprise then that Peter goes immediately to say to the benediction, to him be the dominion forever and ever. To him, dominion forever. That's as good a phrase to close with as I can think of to him dominion forever
Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of bowing before your word. We bow down before you. You are a good God and you have been kind to us. We've seen the glimpses of this glory in our friends and loved ones in their suffering. We, we, we've, we've learned at least by observation that you do give more grace when the burdens grow greater. And so we, we want to learn this lesson by observation in order that when we are brought to it by experience, uh, we may enter into the joy of all that your grace provides. I thank you for these days and for these dear folks, for all the stages and places of life in which they find themselves. Thank you that while a man's heart devises his way, the Lord directs his steps. And so we pray that you will order and guide and keep us and grant that as we have occasion to be in one another's company again, it may be with great joy that you will help us to be a help to one another and not a hindrance in any way as we seek to follow Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.